Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a common complaint of the modern age is the sense of distraction and lack of focus that pervades our lives. And we typically blame technology like the internet or our smartphones for an inability to concentrate on the task at hand. But my guest today argues that the culture of distraction we face today runs much deeper than that and actually began several hundred years ago with the Enlightenment. His name is Matthew Crawford. He's the author of the book Shop Class as Soulcraft. And his latest book is called The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming a Human in the Age of Distraction. And today on the show, Matthew and I discuss the origins of our distracted culture and the deeper implications of our lives live totally inside our own heads. And we explore the idea that we really want to live a life of focus. We need to go beyond just blocking time-wasting sites on our computers and phones. Are you ready to take that journey and discover the world outside your head? Stay tuned for a great discussion. And after the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Crawford. All right, Matthew Crawford, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I've long been a fan of your work, uh, your first book that I really enjoyed, Shop Class as Soulcraft. Your latest book, The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction is out in paperback now, and it's very, very good. Um, And we're going to talk about that today. But before we get there, can you talk a little bit about your background? Because I think it's interesting first, but also uh, it will put, I think, put some context in from like where you're coming from with the arguments you're making today. Well, the uh, yeah, I tell a little bit of my story in shop classes, soul craft. I uh, I majored in physics as an undergrad in uh, at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, and um, tried to get a, a job with that degree and couldn't, so I fell back on being an electrician and did that for a while. Um, and then eventually, I got interested in philosophy. I went and did a uh, PhD in sort of the history of political thought at the University of Chicago and held various white collar jobs that uh, weren't doing it for me and uh, found myself uh, running a think tank in DC and um, really pretty much hated it. And so I lasted about five months. I quit that to open a motorcycle repair shop in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, yeah, and then from there, I mean, you that's what you do, but you're also right now, I guess, currently it says on your the back of your book, you're a, yeah. a senior fellow at the University of Virginia. Yeah, right. So I've, uh, I don't teach, but I've got this gig um, 
as, as a research fellow at the University of Virginia. Um, so what it means is that I try to get out there about once a week and have lovely conversations with people. It's, it's a really nice intellectual um, community. Um, so it's kind of just enough of a toehold in academia to, uh, to give me um, what I need from that kind of environment. Gotcha. But there's no, yeah, there's no obligation. So I, I think there must be some clerical error at the heart <laughs> of it, but I, I don't ask too many questions. Right. So you spend most of your time working in your uh, motorcycle shop. Yeah, it it varies because I you know as uh, I should back up. I also do some writing, obviously. So right. depending on how much writing, so like these days, it's probably you know, like thirty hours a week in the shop, um, and that goes sort of up and down. I've gotten a, an employee right now, so I kind of have to be there more. Gotcha. So uh, your first book, Shop Class as uh, Soulcraft, uh, you make the case that skilled manual labor can provide a person a sense of satisfaction and meaning that can't be found in the, that often can't be found in the world of knowledge work or information work. Right. I mean, you felt, you, you felt it. And I think a lot of other people felt it. It's like, I, the work I'm doing, I don't really know what it's doing, actually pushing in numbers into Excel sheets. Um, and it's a really great book. If our listeners haven't read it, go out there and get it. Um, your new book, the world beyond your head, uh, on becoming an individual in, in an age of distraction. Is this uh, book a continuation of your thoughts in shop class? And if so, how are the two connected? Well, I guess one really simple way to, to uh, state the connection would be um, they're motivated by the, the kind of being struck with the, the thought that various forms of slavery come wrapped in an ideology of freedom. So, um, you know, in shop class, I was trying to make sense of my own work experience and why I always felt so stultified and sleepy, really, in the various cubicle jobs I'd had. You know, when you're working in an office, it's often difficult to say exactly what you've accomplished at the end of any given day. The, the chain of cause and effect can be pretty opaque and confusing. And so that, that feeling of individual agency can be elusive. And by that, I just mean, you know, seeing a direct effect of your actions in the world. Um, whereas, you know, I've, I've worked as a mechanic and electrician and, you know, when I flip the switch and see the lights come on, it's like, it's this incontrovertible uh, experience of, of having done something that I can actually point to. And, and I always found that really um, kind of thrilling. And then, so, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the connection, so in the world beyond your head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and then in the world beyond your head, um, it's this sense that we're living through a, a sort of crisis of attention right now. And, and uh, it's per- become pretty widely remarked upon. It's usually people complaining about technology some way um and that but the i think one reason it's become hard for us to resist uh, all the enticements and all the sort of appropriations of our attention is that they they kind of presented to us under the um under an ideology of choice right just having more choices is always better and uh, this idea that we get really from economics that to maximize your freedom requires maximizing the number of choices you face. But that's precisely the condition that makes for maximum dissipation of your energies. 
So it seemed like it required a reflection on uh, kind of what's at stake when um, when we're so kind of subject to appropriation of our attention by um, often mechanized forces and by commercial forces. Because when it's really bad, I think it often feels like what's at stake is whether you're going to be able to um, maintain a coherent self, you know, just a self that's able to act according to settled purposes and ongoing projects rather than just flitting about. Right. And, and besides, I mean, you kind of touched on that a bit, a bit, I mean, some of the consequences of this attentional problem that we're facing today. Um, but I mean, it seems like in the book, it runs deeper or the case, your argument that you're making is it runs deeper than just being like, Oh man, I, I got to quit checking Facebook because I got to be productive in my job or whatever. It seems like the consequences actually are deeper and affect us on a societal level as well. Um, so what are some of those consequences? Yeah. Well, um, as I mentioned, a kind of a feeling of fragmentation, the feeling that your attention isn't simply yours to direct as you will. Now, of course, it's not you know as simple as some kind of you know it's not something coercive. It's tapping into appetites we have for certain kinds of stimulation, um, and uh, you know we willingly invite into our lives all these things from Candy Crush to to porn. Um, and so I think really this distractibility points to a, a deeper cultural problem, which is kind of agnosticism about what's worth paying attention to. And that really comes down to the question of what's, uh, what to value, uh, because what you pay attention to is sort of what's most present to you or most real for you. And I think... Um, Part of the problem is that just the way we inhabit the world is very is really changed dramatically over the past I don't know twenty years or something. I mean, you could you could trace the kind of genealogy of this variously and push it back a hundred years if you want. But in any case, when um, you know, sort of the natural way of inhabiting the world is just in your body, and the body gives us a kind of center of orientation. <clears throat> So there's things behind me and, and you know in front of me to the left to the right above and below, and that what that does is it kind of establishes a zone of relevance. You know what is actually within reach. You know literally within reach, um, and that's important for attention because the the whole idea of attention is that you select some things out, you know, from everything that's available and not other things. But when you're uh, encountering the world through, you know, representations, you know, like on a computer screen where you can take a virtual tour of the Forbidden City in Beijing or of, you know, these underwater caverns. Um, everything is lumped into a kind of distancelessness that um, there doesn't seem to be any non-arbitrary basis on which to say, you know, this and that and not that pertains to me. So in that condition, um, I think it's very hard to compose a coherent life on the basis sort of, of infinite options, infinite choice. Um, not least because, you know, whatever's going on in your immediate environment with the people that you actually share your life with is likely to not be as amusing <laughs> as whatever's going on, you know, on the internet. So 
began at this feeling of being subject to centrifugal forces that, that kind of pull us apart. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, but so you started off talking about, you know, there we, there's this notion today that we have unlimited choices, which makes us free, but you argue that actually it can actually stifle us because we become overwhelmed with the amount of choices. And this is sort of the crux of the problem of attention. And, and you make the interesting case, like you said, I mean, it, things have gotten really changed a lot in the past 20 years with the advent of the internet and smart devices where you're constantly connected to a virtual world. But you argue that this attention problem we have originated, you know, two, 300 years ago, you could say, with the, um, the Enlightenment. Uh, I know there's a lot to unpack there, but how did enlighten, the Enlightenment thinking lead to this problem of attention mm-hmm. that we have today? Well, really at the heart of it is isn't is um, a set of ideas that emerged, you know, back in the 1600s about how we make contact with the world, how we grasp the world. And the, the big idea was that um, we do so only through our internal mental representations of the world. In other words, you can't really make contact with the things themselves, but you, you construct some, some picture in your head and it's, and it's always through that um, kind of mediating representation that we encounter the world. Now, <clears throat> there's good reasons to think that this is a, is a more or less completely bogus view of how we grasp reality. And I, I say that based on uh, more recent philosophy and, and, and cognitive science. But the weird thing is that life has come to imitate theory so that, you know, in the 21st century, sure enough, we increasingly encounter the world through these representations. Um, so as I, you know, as I kind of hinted at before, I think that's the basic reason why um, we feel a kind of um, a lack of limit on our mental lives that has the effect of kind of dissipating our mental energies. Um, because if you, if you're sort of bodily wave and, you know, being in the world doesn't isn't providing a, a, a frame of orientation. Then there's there's literally no limit to what you can uh, preoccupy yourself with. Right, and that can be just psychologically exhausting. Yeah, totally. And it's also, I mean, we're subject to this feeling like I'm I'm missing out or I'm not completely optimizing my experience. I could be. You know, there's something more awesome going on in some corner I need to investigate. And uh, and then that's connected, I think, to um, this feeling of of individualism where it's, it's really up to everybody to kind of make themselves, you know, into their fullest self. There's a kind of existential heroism where um, you feel radically responsible for yourself. You know, once upon a time we had, you know, you might have had a hereditary occupation. Um, you might have been born into some rigid social system where you're, you know, the range of um, kind of possibilities for you were quite constrained. Of course, that that's bad in all kinds of ways, but what it meant was that, um, well, I think the experience of failure has become much, it goes much deeper for us precisely because we feel like if you're 
you know, if your life isn't everything you want it to be, it's on you because, um, you know, because we have so much freedom. And that's, I think that leads to a lot of anxiety and depression. Right. Even de Tocqueville, right? Is that how you say his name? The, mm-hmm. the French guy, like he noticed that in Americans, like they were, had a lot of freedom, but like, they were like some of the most miserable people at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And one thing, I, Tocqueville's great. He, uh, he pointed out that Americans, um, you know, they ha- we have this, um, this idea that everyone has to stand on their own two feet and reject any kind of example or custom, any kind of social authority. Um, and, you know, he's writing, this is back in the 1830s, and this was already true of America. Um, and he says that this has a strange effect because we actually sense correctly that we're not really competent to judge everything for ourselves and yet we have this kind of cultural imperative to do so and it makes us anxious so what we do is we look around to see what everyone else thinks our contemporaries um so there's sort of paradoxical way in which the rugged individualist turns out to be a conformist um, so in other words, we look to our contemporaries rather than to some inherited tradition or some, you know, other forms of, of social authority. So going back to this idea that we're, um, agnostic about our attention, like we don't have like, yeah. you're going like, if you want to use like Aristotelian terms, we don't have a telos, like an end mm-hmm. for our attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you, I think you are, you argue in the book that this originated in the Enlightenment too. So there's this idea that you know personal autonomy, freedom is the thing that's most important, and as a result, like you can't impose your beliefs on other people, so that they or your preferences on other people because that would rob them of their mm-hmm. freedom. But and that sounds great on theory. It's like oh yeah, everyone has to do their own thing. But you make the case that it actually leads to sort of this blandness and flattening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's um, you know this this uh, everything you just said. If you wanted to give a name to it, you could name it subjectivism. This idea that what makes something right or good or, or beautiful is how I feel about it, and that um, all of these judgments are are radically private. It's like an itch. You know, no one else can feel your itch or your pain, which means that there's a kind of um, they're incommunicable in a way. We can't really enter into a shared judgment about things. And um, one thing that does, I think it makes us retreat ever further into ourselves. And there's a kind of um, timidity about um, dis- you know, disputing with, with one another in a, in a kind of rational way. Instead, instead, what we find these days is people um, forming these self-selecting enclaves online, right? Where, where we affirm one another and form these, these kind of micro uh, subcultures. And you see this in politics, too, where it's increasingly um, kind of self-reinforcing echo chambers um, and the very idea of a shared uh, truth, a shared world that we can kind of talk rationally about seems to have been eroded a little bit. Right, right. And it makes the world sort of bland. 
Like when we do interact with others who don't share our interest, we have to keep very things very neutral. I mean, you gave the example of the music at the gym where yeah. it was playing, you know, some sort of weird, you know, emo music, bland emo music was being piped in. And like you went to the kid at the counter and said, play anything. I'm sure whatever you listen to is better than this garbage. And the kid was just like, no, I, I can't do that. Yeah. He, he, it, was, it was interesting. Um, what he said was, I wouldn't want to impose my choice on anyone. And, you know, that, that sounds admirable in a way. Um, but what it meant uh, is that he had this kind of automatic deference to the music selected by some, you know, institutional music provider. Um, and so there's a weird way in which this, um, this sort of liberal notion of, of always um, respecting the majority can turn very easily into a just conceding the whole uh, field to whatever commercial forces are kind of the most energetic in taking over our, our public spaces. And I, you know, and I contrast that with when I was 13 <clears throat> lifting weights in the YMCA in Berkeley, where there'd be a little boom box on the floor and, um, you know, people could fight over it, you know, to put their music on. Now, of course, <laughs> You know, the guys who dominated the weight room were these huge, uh, you know, sort of lineman guys who would squat like 600 pounds. So as a scrawny little, uh, scrawny little white guy, obviously I wasn't going to be challenging anybody for the boom box. But I really preferred that because the source of the music was right there. It was accessible. And um, there's a kind of hierarchy in the weight room. Um, it was you know, clear to everybody and somehow with the, the, my current experience in the gym with the music, it's like, it lays this kind of blank suffocating blanket of, um, I don't know, lameness over the whole thing. And everyone then of course plugs in their earbuds cause they don't want right. <laughs> to hear the music <laughs> and then you can't get a spot, uh, cause you have to like force someone to take their earbuds out. So it just, um, I just miss the kind of more slightly more edgy uh, environment of a gym where it's um, there's more interaction. Right. And there was also, there was more, more hierarchy. Right. So people were outside of, they had to like in, engage with the outside and they weren't in, you know, they weren't inside their head, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Um, wedding season is coming up. And if you are, preparing for the big day. I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O. 
C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And it, I think it's you make an interesting argument too. So, you know, this idea that we have, there's an illusion that we have freedom and autonomy. We can go online and we can order shoes however we want them. Um, we can have it delivered right to our door in two days, thanks to Amazon Prime. And it's, it seems like technology is making our world more frictionless. Um, but how, how is it, why is it that this frictionlessness that we're trying to achieve with, you know, what people are trying to achieve in Silicon Valley, how does that actually deter us from actually becoming an individual and actually, and actually experiencing real agency and autonomy? I mean, 
your example of like the Mickey Mouse clubhouse. Yeah. Like my, right. I, my kids are like, I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And so I've seen that show and I've hated mm-hmm. it. I've just thought this sucks. This yeah. is terrible. But you use that yeah. as an example of sort of like what the sort of what we're trying. What, there's a sense of choice, but you really don't have a choice. Yeah. If you watch, uh, if you have kids, it means you end up watching a fair bit of children's television. And it, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty horrifying but it's hard to put your finger on what's wrong I mean, everything is so nice <laughs> um and part, part, that's partly the problem so you know in the book i contrast the old disney cartoons with the current ones. so in the old ones from whatever 50 years ago or something um you know it's all about slapstick violence uh material reality is constantly thwarting and frustrating people uh, and, and injuring them. And it's funny. I mean, it's funny to get, watch someone get slapped by an over, uh, ground, grandfather clock or, you know, uh, retractable blinds that <laughs> suddenly, you know, pull you up, uh, and around, um, into the, into the uh, mechanism. So contrast that with the current iteration where it's got all the same characters, but it's the it's the the world depicted is full of all this amazing technology that always works perfectly, and there's no moment of frustration that's allowed to arise. Um, and so when when there is you know some kind of difficulty that the character faces in the story. Uh, they say these magic words. I think it's miska, muska, something, something. Yeah, or like hey toodles is the other thing. Yeah, right. And then hey, hey toodles. So when you say that, it makes this, um, this, uh, this thing. I guess it's called toodle that condenses out of the cloud, and it's this computer-like thing, and it presents a menu of four options for solutions for whatever problem you have. So then your, your task is to simply choose one of these solutions. Now in every episode, there are four problems <laughs> that arise. So you're guaranteed that one of these solutions is going to be the one. And so it's just, it's not just not funny. It's somehow the opposite of funny. And uh, it's, if the old cartoons were kind of depicting a certain kind of, psychological reality the new ones seem to be not concerned with depicting reality so much as adjusting kids to um you know to ask for help um don't give into frustration you know um you know pick one of the uh, solutions that's offered to you so it's just super creepy in the way that it, it seems to be educating kids into a kind of passivity independence um you know this menu of options and choices i think makes us more pliable to whoever is creating these little choice architectures so yeah it's uh so yeah i put that in a chapter with the title of um, virtual reality as moral ideal the idea is that um a kind of creeping substitution of virtual reality for actual reality. Right, right. And I mean, so what this does, I mean, like you said, it, it puts us in our head. It makes us think that some magic thing will 
come down and solve our problems for us without any friction. We don't have to deal with annoying customer service. We don't have to deal with stuff not working. And if something doesn't work, there will be options for us to pick from. But as you said, like that, that giving us those options, it gives us the appearance of autonomy, but like you really don't have it because you have to choose one of those, one of those options. the word I like is agency. Agency. As, I'm kind of yeah. I'm trying to sh- kind of shift our concern from from autonomy to agency. Okay. So you know, the, this world depicted in the contemporary Disney cartoons is one where you don't need any skill whatsoever. I mean, you choose something, but you you don't have any idea how your choice is actually realized in the world. Um, I think skill only develops in an environment where you're challenged, where you have to engage directly with, you know, material reality that isn't sort of geared to please you. Um, so in a, in a world where everything is frictionless, it means you never develop skill, which means you're then dependent on whoever's arranging things for you. And that really gets to, you know, the big idea of the book, The World Beyond Your Head, which is um, that it's through skilled practices that we can um, kind of reclaim a certain way of being in the world more directly. So I present these case studies of um, short order cooks, motorcycle racers, um, hockey players, people who build uh, musical instruments, and these establish what I call ecologies of attention, where your perception is kind of tuned to the particular features of your environment that show up for you kind of through the lens of the activity. And extraneous information is just kind of dampened or, or disappears, and you get into that um, state of total absorption that can be really, uh, really pleasing. Yeah. And, and what you say, these, what these skills do, or the, you know, getting involved in a skilled practice, um, it forces you out of your head. You have to ex- deal with the world as it is and not how you wish it were, you know, magic Mickey Mouse club land. Um, but then also you, you argue that skilled practices usually have these traditions or sort of hierarchy as you talked about earlier that, you know, they, on the one hand, it seems like, oh, wow, it's like it's that's stifling. But you argue, actually, no, it can it actually is the way you can have agency yeah. and express your individuality. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, just, um, I mean, physical stuff, um, you know, to to be get good at playing the guitar, you have to submit to the mechanical, you know, contingencies of the instrument. Uh, you have to practice scales endlessly. Similarly, uh, you know, learning a foreign language is just a lot to um, to learn. It provides a kind of authoritative structure within which you develop your powers of expression. <clears throat> and um, so, I think it's uh, true in general that real agency only arises in the in the context of submission to things you have not made yourself. And uh, you know, the term submission and authority, those are really jarring to the modern ear, um, especially if it involves other people. I mean, it's one thing to submit to a guitar, but if there's other people involved in it, then we really get our hackles up. Um, so, 
Yeah, in the final chapter of the book, I'm talking about this shop where they're building Baroque pipe organs. So they've inherited these forms of the Baroque pipe organ. They're hundreds of years old. And what was really interesting about it to me is that um, they're engaged in this... uh, It isn't simply a, a kind of loving antiquarianism where they're you know, reproducing these static forms that have come down to them. It's more like they're engaged in this quarrel with the organ builders of the past. And it's a quarrel about how to best realize, you know, the musical potential of the pipe organ. So it's a conversation and it, and it moves along and it kind of has a point. And one reason it was uh, so fascinating is that, well, to begin with, they're building their pipe organs to last 400 years. I mean, they're, they're literally, that's their time frame. You know, they're putting these in churches and music halls. Um, so, you know, that alone shows you they're working on a very different time scale than most of the economy. And this, it's, so there's this interplay between being oriented toward the past and being oriented toward the future. And it means that the individual craftspeople working there, and there was maybe like, I don't know, 20 or 30 people working there. Um, Their development and skill and understanding, they see as part of this much longer historical arc, which is the history of their trade. And it's this kind of living tradition that they situate themselves in. And it really seems to kind of give a meaning to their work and a kind of narrative coherence to their lives that I I found really um, quite amazing. And um, one thing my, my observations there really did was complicate this idea of the spirit of technology versus the spirit of kind of preservation. We often think that technology is, you know, just kind of vandalizes the things that we, that we care about or, you know, that it's some kind of saving force that will, you know, make the world into utopia or something. But here it was this kind of interplay of um, it, it's, they're constantly innovating. They're trying new materials, but it's, um, with a view to kind of keeping alive this, again, this, uh, this story arc they're part of. And I just thought it was a really um, kind of, it's, it cuts so much against the image we have of the um, innovator as, you know, just gestating in a California garage someplace and then emerging like Moses with his, you know, new, uh, his new app or whatever it may be. Um, which is this kind of totally isolated moment disconnected to see the past and the future. And uh, so it was interesting for that reason. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, the, the just is by, by, imbu- by embedding themselves in this tradition and in this community, very small community of organ restorers and builders, it gave them a reference mm-hmm. to which... Yeah. Their, their changes meant like their their changes meant some meant something, right? So if they decided to use this material for the stop, mm-hmm. uh, like 
they were tr- being true to it, but at the same time, like it allowed them to innovate as well. It gave them reference for their, their innovation, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And it's all these uh, sort of overlapping lineages of apprenticeship is what makes up this community. And, you know, as a beginning organ maker, you have to just kind of do things the way your teacher shows you without fully understanding the reasons for it. Uh, you learn by imitation. And there's a you know, kind of men- mentorship that happens. And, you know, in our, uh, you know, in America, apprenticeship is often criticized for being too narrow in education. It's often said that what the economy demands is workers who are flexible, almost, you know, that they shouldn't be burdened with any particular set of skills or knowledge because you have to be ready to reinvent yourself at any time. But when you go deep into some particular art or skill, it trains your powers of concentration and perception. You become more discerning about these particular objects, you know, in this case, pipe organs. And if all goes well, you begin to care viscerally about quality, um, usually because you've been initiated into a kind of ethic of caring about what you're doing by the example of some particular person, some mentor who embodies that spirit of craftsmanship. So I guess my point then is that this kind of technical training that was certainly narrow in its immediate application can be understood as part of education in the broadest sense, that is um, intellectual and and moral formation. So there, I think there's a a larger point to be made about um, kind of hands-on training uh, for young people. Yeah. This kind of, this reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, a lady named Susan Wise Bauer. I think she's at, is she, in, she lives in Virginia. I know she wrote a book called the classical education you never had. Mm. And she makes a similar argument, you know, that today in education in our schools, like we skip over, we, we think telling kids to memorize, you know, wrote information, right? Like dates and like, who are the characters and you know, books like that's, we shouldn't do that because like in today's economy, they need to know how to think and like, you know, uh, be flexible. But he says like, when you skip over that sort of the very basics, um, and get people to developing opinions, that's what she says. We, people, kids are taught to develop opinions. They, uh, they kind of, they don't have anything to build their opinion on. So yeah, their opinion yeah. is sort of that's good. shaky. Yeah. I think if you don't have actual knowledge, then it's very hard to think because <laughs> then you're just kind of moving around vague abstractions. I mean, yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah. Um, so Matthew, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. We've really like scraped the surface of it, but I'm curious. I mean, so we, what's the takeaway for us guys who, you know, that maybe we're not uh, going to start uh, a Baroque organ <laughs> shop or mm-hmm. become a, you know, a motorcycle custom motorcycle guy, but I mean, I mean, what's the takeaway for us? Is it, it just, is it to get in touch with the real as much as possible and stay away from representations? You know, I think any activity that brings you into, um, kind of cooperation and conflict with other people kind of gets at a, at a lot of this. So just, you know, playing sports, um, playing music with other people, you know, cooking, cooking a meal, um, it's, um, 
I mean, this is just very obvious kind of advice that won't come as a shock to anybody. There's nothing <laughs> new here, but it does seem like the real satisfactions we get in life are when we're um, kind of, yeah, doing stuff that's real in the sense that um, it's not some manufactured experience that's been designed around you uh, simply to to gratify your need for certain kinds of stimulation. So, um, yeah, it seems like we need some kind of big uh, grand point here to end. But, <laughs> but, um, no, I guess, yeah, wait, I don't know, but no, it makes sense. It's just, it's, it's a nice reminder yeah. for people. And like this, um, you know, reading it not only has helped me, but it's made me think about how I parent and like being cognizant of like, okay, am I letting my kids spend too much time? on the iPad, even though he only gets like a limited amount of time. Like maybe I need to shut that off and get him outside and mm-hmm. experience uh, stuff that frustrates him. Yeah. Um, right. I guess the other takeaway is don't let your kids watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. <laughs> oh God. So yeah. Yeah. Get some old three stooges or, uh, you know, those old violent, uh, road <laughs> cartoons because for, <laughs> because for one thing, they're actually funny. They are funny, but it also teaches you something. Te- it's teaching them something that the world isn't always going to save you. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Well, well uh, Matthew, we're, it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say. It's I was going to say we're work. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say where, where can people learn more about your work? Uh, well, I've, I've got a website. It's uh, matthewbcrawford.com. dot uh, com. You know, no no period after the B as in boy. And uh, I've got links to uh, some of my shorter writings. Uh, people can get a little taste if they want. And then uh, from there, there's a link to my shop. If you're looking for custom motorcycle parts, uh, yeah, hit me up. Cool. Well, Matthew Crawford, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. My guest today was Matthew Crawford. He's the author of the book, The World Beyond Your Head. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Matthew's work at MatthewBCrawford.com. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash Crawford for links to resources where you can delve deeper in the topics we discussed today on the show. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, as that helps promote the show. As always, I appreciate your community support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.